This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast, picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be a Better Investor podcast. It's a podcast where I pick the brains of some of the top professional investors in the country. And we delve into their own personal investment approaches. We talk about the research process they follow to identify potential investments. We look at their best and worst investments ever. We peek into their own personal portfolios. The idea is to find those golden nuggets uh, from their perspectives and experiences to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. And my guest today is Keith McLaughlin. Now, officially, he is the investment officer at Integral Asset Management, but he also wears and wore several other well-known hats. And uh, the most definitive one is probably his status as one of the best small cap analysts in the country. He's ran and managed several small cap funds. He also has a blog, smallcaps.co.za, where he writes about small caps and uh, he shares his views about the prospects of many companies or his views thereof uh, listed in Joburg uh, as well as in the rest of the world. Keith, welcome to the show. I really appreciate your time. Uh, let's just start off. Where did your fascination with small caps come from? That has to go back some, some time. And um, I've always been interested in the stock market. I started investing in the first year of varsity with my scholarship money, but that's a whole other story. Um, we'll get to that. And, <laughs> And through the process of making and losing money uh, while studying finance and ultimately becoming a CA and the like, I realized that I both enjoyed and I was good at fundamentally researching companies and ultimately coming through that process, handpicking stocks to invest in. Now, a natural progression then is to drift to the part of the market that rewards that the most. And the part of the market where primary research is the least done and therefore the most amount of alpha can be generated is in the smaller mid-cap space. And thus, it became a natural progression to move in that direction and generate the maximum amount of return on my time as a researcher and ultimately, hopefully, generate the maximum return as an investor. Yeah, that's the theory. But the small cap sector has really lagged for probably a decade now. It's been a really a tough sector to go and pick the winners. So take us through your process. How do you look at small caps and how do you separate the winners from the losers? Actually, the way you look at small caps is the way I think you should look at any company. So this answer works for large caps as well. But intrinsically, as an investor, I think we should buy good companies and try to pay good prices for them. Now, that's a bit of a vague expression because what is a good company and what is a good price? Well, what makes a good company isn't rocket science. It's all the classic attributes of quality. You want a highly profitable business with you know, good barriers to entry to the industry, good uh, competitive advantages against its peers, hopefully differentiating itself in such a way that it almost has no direct competitors, large addressable market, highly profitable, great returns on capital, great margins, and being well managed by a good management team that is aligned with shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. And none of these things I'm saying should rock the boat. They're all pretty logic and honestly quite boring, but they're fundamentally important. What gets a little bit more esoteric is when we consider what is a good price. 
Now, I think value without quality is a trap, but quality without growth is an illusion. And what I mean by that is looking at a company and going, gosh, that's a very low price earnings isn't good enough or a low price to book or a low valuation that isn't good enough to necessarily buy that. You've got to make sure that the underlying is going to hang around. The underlying is going to survive and be good. So you need that underpin of quality. And what I think is that growth is one of the attributes of a quality business. Without growth, it's not actually quality. Why isn't it growing? There's a problem there. And therefore, you've got to find the, the combination of all these attributes. That starts to become a very defendable investment into a company, irrespective of whether it's large or small. It's interesting. Most professional investors I talk to have a similar approach, you know, really a, a fundamental financial analysis and then maybe a, a macro analysis of where this company is going. Uh, you know, are the arrows uh, pointing upwards? Is there growth on the horizon? But in your funds, typically, what is your hit ratio? How many companies actually achieve the potential you see when you buy the share? So how many winners do you pick in relation to the total number of shares in the portfolio? It honestly depends which portfolios and mandates you're looking at. Because we, for example, have some much more defensive, broad, more diversified ones. And then we have far more concentrated ones. I run, for example, a small mid-cap mandate as well. And we run some large-cap offshore. So, Rake. It's a good question, but that's a hard question to answer because at Integral Asset Management, as in my PA account, in my personal capacity, we are running portfolios that are crafted for different investors. What I would say is that if you're looking on the lower end of the market and the riskier portfolios, what you're doing is you're looking at a flatter normal distribution curve in terms of returns. What I mean by that is that you tend to have fat tails. So your winners will be huge winners. Your losers will be terrible. And a little bit of the portfolio will just basically track the market. Now, luckily, with your losers, you hope they identify them quickly, get out. And because you don't use gearing, you don't lose 100% there or more than 100%. And hopefully, you get out long before you've lost anywhere near to 100%. But your winners, you can let run. And by that, you can not just offset your losers, but you can create alpha on those. That's really where you get your multi-baggers that generate huge returns. Now, the more defensive the portfolio and the more diversified, the smaller those fat tails will be and, and the closer in the clustering into the normal distribution curve you'll, you'll tend to have, the higher the bullshit curve. That's a long way of answering you that it depends on the portfolio. I do think that investing, not just stock picking, but managing portfolios Everyone focuses on the returns, not enough people focus on the risk. Mm. And this is actually ultimately a risk management process. So I'm less concerned on the winner to loser ratio, irrespective of the mandate and portfolio, and more concerned on the risk adjusted return and the ultimate total return we're generating at a portfolio level. And there I'm quite comfortable we consistently do well. Um, that's a good point. Let's talk about your investment career you said earlier you bought your first share when you were at varsity tell us what was the very first share you bought and why did you buy it 
<laughs> this is a terribly embarrassing question. So in first year varsity, knowing nothing, and I've always been a strong proponent of learning by doing, by all means, read and research and understand what you're doing as to the best of your ability. But some lessons can only be learned through experience. So when I started at varsity in first year, I was quite lucky where I had a dean's scholarship which is really a discretionary payment. It's supposed to cover your studies, but my, my father was a professor at varsity, so I was doubly blessed by not having to pay tuition and you know, student fees. So I took half of that scholarship and I put it into the stock market with the view to let me figure out how the stock market thing works. And then in the background, I'm obviously studying and going on with my life. So the first share I bought was a company called Zaptronics that, I, that is, I is not that. listed. <laughs> it is a terrible stock. And my rationale, because even though it sounds fancy to be trading your scholarship money, that actually was not a, lot, a large amount of money at all. So my rationale, however deeply flawed and hugely embarrassing it is, was because it was a, it was a penny stock and therefore it was cheap. It was trading at a few cents a share, and then if it goes up a few cents a share, I can I can make money. Now, there's a lot of lessons. Funny enough, I did actually make money on, on that first investment, but that was despite myself, not because of myself. There's just so many lessons in that. First of all, the share price does not tell you whether a company is cheap or not. The valuation does. And in order to arrive at the valuation, you actually got to understand the business. And I had no clue what Zaptronics was doing. So it was a terrible first investment, irrespective of having made money. Now, Zaptronics was uh, one of many IT listings during the uh, late 90s boom. All the technology stocks rushed to the JSE and most of them disappeared from the JSE after the dot-com bubble burst. Interesting company nonetheless. What would you regard as your best ever investment? That is a good question. So in the small cap fund that I used to run, we held Capitech from the beginning. That was an absolute multi-bagger. And in fact, would have carried on holding it, but it moved out of our mandate and moved into the top 40. That's a good example of an excellent investment and held, bought for all the right reasons, held for all the right reasons, and then sold because of a technicality. In my personal account, this one I still hold, and I think I'm going to get a couple more multi-bags out of it, is Santova. I think my average price in there must have been about a rand and it's trading at about six rand now. That's been a fantastic company. It's executed on the strategy. It's well run by a great and agile management team. And importantly, it continues doing well, yet the market hasn't fully rewarded it. So it's still sitting on a low multiple. So that one, in fact, a carry on holding. But there's a range of other ones that have done well, from Datatech to Adapt.T, Colgrain 3, famous brands, all of those have exited. Some of them are exited a little bit late and I would have made more money if I exited, but all of them over the last investment, uh, I did relatively well. But uh, yeah, if, if I had to circle back to my two best, I, I would say Capitec and Santova. And Santova, I would argue, is not fully played out yet. And the biggest dog you ever bought? <laughs> so I actually got three there. I'm not sure if you remember the LTX listing boom. That must have been around the early 2000s into around the credit crisis and just after. There was a company that listed called Country Foods. 
And uh, what they really did was they farmed and sold mushrooms, which has quite a hard barrier to entry because you, you need some very specialized tubing to, to grow these mushrooms in. You can't just plant them in a random field. So there's a lot of IP and skill and capex that goes into it. And I remember I bought Country Foods because I looked through their, their results. They were good. I looked at the valuation. It was extremely cheap and a low price earnings, and I invested in it. And in between that set of results and their next set of results, six months later, they went bankrupt. And that's how quickly it happened. My mistake there was I wasn't rigorous enough in terms of understanding cash flow, working capital, and debt on the balance sheet. And that's what really sunk them. So that's a good example of a bad investment. On the offshore side, I made an investment in shaft sinkers, which has got a long story behind it, but that was a net asset value play, and it was going to be binary. They were either going to come right, and I was getting multiples of my money because they were at such a fraction of their book value, or it was going to go wrong and lose everything, and I lost everything. It went wrong. So just because you're taking a risk doesn't mean you're going to be uh, rewarded for it. But you're a CA. You can look at financial statements in a very detailed way, and uh, you have a lot of experience in that process. But many retail investors, amateur investors, are not CAs. They don't have experience. They may base the investment decisions on the name, like you said, Zaptronics. Uh, sometimes you have a good experience with a company or you're a big customer or client of the company and you make investment decisions not as thoroughly financially researched as they should be. In your view, what are the biggest mistakes retail investors make? Is confusing price with value. I think that's a key mistake a lot of people make. Confusing graphs and share prices with fundamentals as well. Don't forget, now we're not talking trading, we're talking investing. If you're going to be a co-owner in the business, surely you would like that to be a good business. So just because the share price has come down doesn't make it cheap. And just because the share price has gone up doesn't make it a good company. Go and understand the business. So I think the starting point is everyone in the market focuses too much on the share price and are not enough on the fundamentals and valuations. Understand what you're buying and understand why you're buying it. And from that, you can start to make rational decisions. The second most common mistake, I would say, is not being sufficiently diversified. I see a lot of people talking you know, on, on Fin Twitter and, and the like and people posting about their portfolios and they have five stocks in their portfolio or they, or they have three stocks or this is, by all means, pick stocks and you've got to start somewhere. So don't let diversification or the lack thereof stop you from investing. But have a goal to arrive at a good diversified portfolio. I mean, if you think about it this way, everything we're talking about, about uh, finding good companies, not overpaying for them, buying and investing in them, is already focusing on the upside. But after you've invested and after you've bought and you've made those investments, everything else is risk management. And the cheapest, the most obvious, and still to this day for a long-only investor, the best risk management is diversification. And I don't think people give it enough thought. They become far too concentrated in their positions. So they might be right. But all you need to be is wrong once with a highly concentrated portfolio and you'll suffer a huge drawdown that you might not or might take years to recover from. So I think those are the two key lessons to summarize is confusing price with fundamentals and valuation 
and not being sufficiently diversified. Let's talk about your personal investment portfolio. What is your goal there, number one? And number two, how often do you actually trade and, uh, you know, take profits or limit losses? So my goal is to generate the maximum sustained return for the longest period possible. But more seriously, because that's every investor's goal, risk adjusting. But what I do on my personal account, my objective to hold somewhere between 15 to 30 companies, all on the JSE and all around the world. And my objective is try to find good companies, excellent companies, in fact, buy them at good to ridiculously cheap prices and make sure I have the least amount of duplication possible in the portfolio. Therefore, I have the most concentrated yet diversified portfolio objectively. So perhaps a way to think about it is going around the world, including our JSE here, but all around the world, I try to find the most unique companies possible and collect them. I'm almost like a collector of unique companies. So if you think of something like Richmond, Richmond is big, it's possibly quite boring, it's listed on the JSE. Would you be able to rebuild a global luxury branded business of that scale on planet Earth anywhere, anytime soon? And no, many of these brands have literal decades of history to build their brands. You cannot replicate that. Ignoring all the distribution and the fact that you've got a bulletproof balance sheet with huge piles of net cash on and all manner of routes to market, and you've got a perfectly aligned management team that are deeply invested in the success of it, you cannot replicate a Richmond overnight. Same with Renogen on the local space. Renogen's uh, with their uh, unique methane and helium gas reserve. It's absolutely globally unique. You cannot just replicate this business. These are the sorts of businesses I look for that have sustained competitive advantages. I back the management teams. I like when my management teams are co-invested with me. And then the final check. The final check is to make sure I don't overpay for them, which I'm quite comfortable none of these I have. That's how I go about constructing my personal account. I think the dream of every investor also to buy excellent companies at uh, rock bottom prices. But give us two or three more of these examples of these uh, companies you have found in South Africa and the rest of the world that actually adhere to those criteria. Let's start with domestically. You can have a look at our PGM producers, Northern Platinum and Sabanya Stillwater come to mind. They're the two that I hold because we absolutely dominate the PGM market. And especially if you have a view on the hydrogen economy and all the further loadings on the catalytic converters, no one can artificially make more PGMs and there are no substitutes for them. So these are absolutely unique companies that just happen to be South African and happen to be listed here, especially with the tragedy that's playing out in Russia and Ukraine. Russia is their big competitor, and uh, those exports are, are, by all appearances, blocked. So these are unique companies to uh, accumulate. I've touched on Santova. I'm not going to go into that some more. Storage is another one that's quite unique. Uh, it's, it's a property company. Some people will consider it a little bit more boring, but it's absolutely dominant with its self-storage properties all over South Africa that are very visible, very branded. You cannot build a self-storage property that is pre-tenanted. 
and therefore the barriers to entry for financing, building, and tenanting a self-storage property, getting to a point where it's break-even, is quite large. Only extremely deep-pocketed players who know what they're doing can do this. And other than storage in the South African market, there aren't any others. And they've obviously been expanding and managing in the UK. Once again, management is strongly invested in their own company. They've got an internal manco, so deeply aligned. This is a classic example of a high-quality company, huge barriers to entry, and it's trading at basically book value. It's got a very attractive dividend yield. Why wouldn't you want to own storage? Going offshore, I own Levi Strauss. They just overnight, they published their uh, results, and they're shooting the lights out. Revenue is up. They're doing fantastically. They're direct consumers, doing brilliantly. They're generating cash. A long time ago, well, well, it feels like a long, long time ago, but Trump actually wasn't that long ago. But the trade war initiated by Trump forced the relook at the supply chain from Levi Strauss such that they diversified their supply chain and they don't have any more than 20% of the supply of their product coming from any single geography. And therefore, when COVID hit, they were perfectly placed. Also consider the fact that uh, one in three people have gone up a pen size on planet Earth from <laughs> lockdowns. <laughs> I, hear, I hear you laughing there, Rick, but it's true. Combine that with the casualization trends that we're seeing in the workforce. Most people are wearing more jeans and less suits and ties. And all of this feeds into Levi Strauss that is deeply uh, internationalizing the business, building a direct-to-consumer, and they're basically following Nike's model. And Nike's proven this works. Levi Strauss is the one jeans brand that is globally known. They don't need to go and build their brand again. It's an absolutely unique business. It's over 100 years old. It's trading on about a 13 times multiple. Why wouldn't you want to own something like that? I mean, offshore, I also own Netflix, I own Pfizer, Garmin is another example. So these are all absolutely unique businesses, like well-known, undemanding valuations. Some people would argue with me about Netflix, but I've crunched the numbers, I disagree with them. And the way the industry is going, I think, I think they're going to do well. You've referred and, to and, several exciting companies. Uh, that's the term you've used. But uh, Levi Strauss, they make jeans. SO Storage, they build garages in which you just, uh, you know, put stuff and store it. Uh, they're not business model-wise exciting. Are you referring to just valuation-wise exciting? I disagree. So first of all, the valuation is exciting and making, generating a very high investment return, I consider as exciting. But I think their business models are exciting because at first glance, most of the market, market's eyes will glaze over and not look at them. When you dig deeper, what you don't realize is the number of levers that these management teams can pull to generate growth within their businesses. And that is exciting. It's hard to replicate. So let's go domestic. And you touched on storage as basically building garages for people to store their private goods. That's not their business model. That's a misinterpretation of their business model. What they have is the ability to build with deep convenience in very central locations that are highly visible. First world properties that you can arrive at virtually. So before you even jump in your car, you've decided to go to a storage facility because it's first in your mind 
pops up in your Facebook feed and when you Google it, it turns up there. And that's not a coincidence. They've got an internal marketing team that is one of the largest spenders on Facebook and Google ads. And they leverage this even in the UK. Um, and then finally, when you turn up at one of their properties, the leasing out and the dropping off of your goods is absolutely slick. Yet, could you replicate this managing thousands upon thousands of individual leases? That's very hard to replicate. How would you manage that? So I disagree with you. I think when you dig into these companies, they actually have exciting business models that are extremely hard to replicate. And therefore, they have pricing power if they just manage to keep growing their top line. Keith, uh, we'll have to leave it there. And thanks for your participation. I can hear the passion. And uh, I think uh, that is also a key element. You need to have the passion to go and find these companies. As you say, I think it's a boring property storage company. But in fact, it's uh, a lot more than that. And just that marketing model seems to be very, very innovative. But thanks for your time today. And hopefully we speak in a year or two or maybe even uh, sooner just to see how these companies have performed. Thanks, Rick. Always great chatting. That was Keith McLachlan. He is the investment officer at Integral Asset Management and uh, he's also one of the top small cap analysts in the country. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Ray Funicap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.